the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to the Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 91, and our guest is Jerry David DeSica. Jerry is a singer, songwriter, and producer whose work includes five full-length records and an EP with his band The Black Swans, production work for several talented artists including the great Larry John Wilson, and a handful of wonderful solo records, including his most recent album, The Unlikely Optimist, and his domestic adventures. This conversation was a blast, y'all. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Jerry David DeSica. And my windows are thanking me Cause it's my memory that's breaking I know I've been thinking of you shouldn't stand down Do you even consider all the good things that are in my mind yeah, Awesome. Okay. Cool. Sorry about all that. It's all good. That's part of the, that's part of our world we're living in. It's, uh, it sure is. It's yeah. okay. It's pretty much every one of these begins yeah. sort of like that and that's totally okay and it all works out fine and I'm grateful yeah. for your time. Thank you so much, Jerry. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks. I, I appreciate you doing this. I'm uh, I'm curious. I, we may end up cutting this part out, but I'm just curious how you came to the marinade, like how you knew about me and to begin with, if you remember. Um, let me think. I'm trying to. Th- it must have been based on the first episode that I heard. I generally, when I'm like listening to podcasts, like it's it's funny because like somebody hit hit me up about starting a podcast, mm-hmm. and I said like. I said, oh, well, you know, uh, I, I listened to podcasts based on the guest. And they said, oh, no, nobody does that. They only listen to podcasts based on the host. Hmm. If you, this was somebody, like somebody called me from like uh, uh, whatever the clear channel company is now, like whatever. Anyway, so, um, and I said, really? They listen to it for the host? I listen to it for the guest. So you must have had a guest on that like got me into that world. Yeah. Cool. Like maybe, I don't remember if it was somebody that I was friends with or not. It was around the same time. Did you ever have Joe Pug on your podcast? I haven't. I'd love to have Joe on. Okay. I haven't had him on. Joe, Joe is like uh like we're we're friends, but like he moved he left Texas not long after I moved here. Yeah. But like he was in Austin. I moved to New Braunfels and then he left. Um if it wasn't Joe, I'm trying to, I'd have to look back. I have a theory. Somebody on that I was like, oh, wow, that's like kind of a different take on talking to musicians. Cool. Well, I appreciate it. I have a theory about how you came to the show, but I want to hold on to that until later for a question I have for you. So, um, but yeah, I would, I would like to have Joe on and I really, we've had a lot of similar guests, including you Mm -hmm. now. And I really enjoyed that conversation you guys had. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about the record, The Unlikely Optimist and His Domestic Adventures. And I want to get there, but there's so okay. much about you that I want to discuss. So sure. I kind of want to get there eventually and okay. kind of weave it through. But I'm really interested in the fact that you you do all these things. You're, you produce records, you produce several records. 
Mm -hmm. um you you had the black swans you've got you know your own thing um and i'm really interested in sort of like those different creative headspaces and Uh how you decide where to put that creative energy so i think with the black swans like that was kind of the sort of like the young man kind of vision of, you know, kind of, you know, we, we started that band right at the beginning and, and the end of different parts of what was still kind of left over the music business. Um, so I think there was like different, it's, it's definitely a different way of thinking about making records Mm -hmm. than like in the early two thousands than it, than it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with headspace. Um, but what that band allowed me to do was it allowed me to, to travel more and meet more musicians, um, and also to be able to be in the studio more. And because we never really or rarely used proper studios, um, I really found like the comfort level in doing things super, super cheap. Like, you know, nobody in the band came from money. And so most of the records we made were really cheap. And that kind of allowed me to kind of imagine making records with people that were not currently making records, which is a lot of where my production duties kind of started. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, ahead. sorry. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to, I definitely don't want to cut you yeah. off if you had something to say. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm curious about that aspect of it too, especially as I was doing research and reading some of the stories, uh, and specifically the Larry John Wilson story mm-hmm. of how you came to re- produce that record, but then also the process of going through producing and making that record. Um, and maybe that's a good entrance point into this question, which is, what does what does the production process look like for you? Are you going in with a lot of ideas of what you think that sh- that record should look like? Are you are you asking a lot of questions ahead of time? Like typically, when you're is there is there a process that you typically go through? There's the only thing that's consistent with all of the people that I've worked with is that I've started out as a fan, mm. and 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 it's that sort of fandom that sort of drives the project from the time that, you know, you have that first conversation to the time the record comes out. Um, But there's not really a process. I mean, some people I've done pre-production with, some people I've like sat down and like, you know, gone through 60 songs. Other, other people I've, I've told them what's working about one song that needs to be fixed. Other people I've just walked into a room with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only one person that I, I guess maybe I hadn't seen play before. So I kind of came into it as a fan of like, I think what a producer does is that when you're in, that's different from an engineer is that you're somebody that, you know, you're, you're a decision maker and you're a director. And so when you, when you start out as a fan, and and not just as somebody that this is what you do for a job you're trying to make a record that if you're one of that individual's biggest fans in the world that you would be excited to listen to Mm. so everything kind of in and at the same time unless you're you know miles davis or stevie wonder or something everybody's got things that is great about their music and things that are not great about their music Mm. and you're trying to highlight those things that are great um, so sometimes I work pe- with people more on pre-production than others. Um, and, and I generally only work with people that I am a fan of. Did you feel in any of those instances or maybe all of them, any, any sort of anxiety or pressure around, this is someone whose work I love. I want to make sure, as you put it, I'm making a record that would live up to the expectations of the fan. For sure. I mean, you know, with the Larry John Wilson record, which I did with my friend Jeb Lloyd Nichols, and it was that was something that kind of spun off of him putting out these compilations or curating these compilations in the UK. Larry John hadn't made a record in, in 28 years at that point in time. 
you know, um, and then with, with other people, it, it, there there is always that pressure but i don't think that it's any different than the pressure that i would have put on myself to make mm. a record mm. you know you you it in all these cases except for the larry john which was actually originally on a major label in the uk um there is very very little money to make these albums mm. you know so you're asking a lot of everybody that's involved you know um and you're always kind of calling in favors um and you want to make sure that you know it's it's a it's a lot of trust that people are putting into you. I don't think that any of the records that I've produced, except maybe one that I made right before the pandemic that hasn't come out yet, um, is the type of record that if you would have asked that artist ahead of time, what type of record do you want to make, that they would have used that as an example. Mm. You know, I definitely have gotten my way as fan producer in every one of those cases mm -hmm. you know larry john wilson wanted uh, uh cello and flugelhorn and electric guitar and and everything and we we made a solo acoustic record with a little violin for my my bandmate that it that passed right before larry john did and larry john did the press circuit over in the uk and they said uh you know larry john what do you think of your new record and he was savvy enough to say it's the record i've always wanted to make mm -hmm. but you know that wasn't necessarily the case for him or or anyone else that i've worked with that's so interesting i it takes a little bit it takes a little bit of confidence it takes a lot of confidence i would i would say in in sort of your vision and your own musical knowledge and understanding to be able to say to someone like larry john wilson um, who, and for folks listening, go, you know, do the research on Larry John Wilson. Uh, there's just so much yeah. there. Um, but to, to be able to say, Hey, no, that's, uh, that's probably not the way we need to go. That takes quite a bit of confidence on your part. Yeah. And, and I think then it was that, that was probably the most unique experience in terms of producing, because when we went down there to meet him in Perdido Key, which is where he wanted to record. There's like a very interesting songwriter scene down there. I think you and I chatted like through email about the sort of Gulf Shore stuff. Um, but, you know, there's a bar there called the Floribama. The guy that owned it at the time has, has since passed. But it was this songwriter's haven. There was actually these like little kind of beat up RVs across the street from it. And where, you know, it was kind of like a Lost Boys sort of scene you know people that maybe wrote a hit song for the Judds in 1987 were living in this trailer you know and and it wasn't I didn't I don't say that in terms of it being sad or anything it was just it was some it was a refuge for a lot of these guys and they they you know they're the I guess the the kingpin of it was Mickey Newberry mm -hmm. who had who had passed before we made the Larry John record and um you know, Billy Joe Shaver used to go down there and the Floribama is very famous for having the Allman Brothers and John Prine in the 70s. And um, we did it in a condominium and Larry John had all these gigs booked the whole week. Um, and while we were hanging out, hanging out meaning recording in this condominium, um, and you can see this kind of makeshift studio set up in, in the video for Shoulders that's on YouTube. I think it's still up there. Um, he would say we're just doing sketches we're this isn't a record these these are just sketches but then when we would go out with him to the club and he'd play to very adoring fans down there he would have us stand up and introduce us as his producers and say that we were making a record wow. you know um the the other people that i've worked with um you know sometimes it's been a label initiated it. Sometimes the artist knocked on my door and sometimes I just kind of made it on my own. Cause I knew if I didn't do this, it, it wasn't going to happen, you know? Um, and, uh, so I, in terms of confidence, uh, I, I guess it takes a lot of confidence, but I mean, I just, it never occurs to me. I'm much more self-conscious about my own music. You know, in terms yeah. of, you know, I, 
one of, one of my takeaways that's like a constant reminder when I'm working with a lot of these guys is to have the courage to do what you're asking them to do, which is difficult, I think. <laughs> For <laughs> sure. Know? Well, I mean, every bit of the artistic process is difficult, right? And it, every bit of it requires a little bit of courage. But and I think one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about courage was because you, you've talked in several places about the the fact that like you are you are such a fan of music and such a consumer mm -hmm. of music and that y y throughout your life you tell these stories about like really just kind of going up to your heroes and you know i mean right. the, the story yeah. that you told in your infomercial for the unlikely optimist and his domestic adventures about emailing augie myers and then that, that whole that whole thing and i'd love to hear if you if you feel comfortable talking about it now that'd oh, be great sure. too like yeah. hearing that story because it's just it seems like that that maybe there's a courage you're not you're not necessarily consciously aware of that's just just there within you i don't know if, if yeah, you thought about it that way i don't know if i ever thought of it as courage i mean it was like it was something i always did you know i was always going to shows and in in part of going to shows is not because you always have the best seat in the house you know it's because you want to be in the same room breathing the same air as this person and see how that feels and and you know i'm not a big show fan because of the community of people around me like some people really are really into you know we're all here together experiencing this i've never really been like that I, i'm just as happy if i'm one of five people in a room mm -hmm. you know um so even in probably as early as like ninth grade or 10th grade i would always walk around backstage you know, and or wait by the bus, you know, knowing that you're only going to get maybe 30 seconds or a minute or two with somebody just to see what they say, just to see what they do. And that's how I spent. And, and I guess that, you know, like writing Augie Myers an email and saying, hey, I think I live in the same town as you. You want to get lunch is just some sort of continuation of that and maybe a more, you know, professional or adult way. Mm -hmm. Um but I've always been that way. I've always wanted to, not that I was looking, even as a young person, maybe I was looking for like wisdom or, 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 you know, uh, being touched on the shoulder, you know, by the hand of a God or something, but it was really about, you know, uh, how does this person talk? How do they interact, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and w maybe wanting to be closer to them, you know, in, in like a pre-internet world where, there wasn't a lot of information out there. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I like that a lot. And you didn't use the word scene necessarily like in that, in that sense, but I, I know that when I go to shows and I, I'm going to be careful about this because my friends listen to this and there are, a lot of them are musicians in this, mm -hmm. in the local scene. But when I go to shows, like, I love going with other people. Don't don't misunderstand me, but I actually prefer to go to shows by myself. I prefer mm -hmm. to go on my terms. I prefer to be kind of toward the back. Typically, I I prefer to take in the the whole thing, but I, I prefer also to just have it to be. It's such a it is my spiritual experience. You know, going to shows right. is my church, and so being there in that room with these people that I love and respect so much or their art, at least, you know, some of them, I know some of them, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I still have great friends and I, you know, recently have gone to a couple of shows where one, I went by myself and then uh, another, I went with some friends, both were wonderful experiences, but I think nine times out of 10, I'd rather just go by myself and take it in. Um, and then I want to get out before everything else. I want to get out and away from it. You know, like I like to keep it almost at an arm's length and because it allows me to still allows me to continue to have that connection to it and also still be a huge fan, if that makes any sense. D totally. I mean, I think people get different things out of shows. I mean, for a lot of people, it's very social. Um, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've been to a music festival you know, that I haven't played, you know, the Black Swans used to play them sometimes, but, um, uh, it, cause it's just, it's too much for me. It's, it's like not really, um, in, in, and maybe there's also like less people around that I'm is interested in that are playing to that many people too. But, um, 
I always go that, you know, it's like, to me, it's going to shows was always an extension of records because I've always loved records. Um, I worked in record stores for, you know, you know, my misspent youth. Um, it's still my favorite. If I had to choose, it's, it's the, re the recorded album that I love the most. Um, and, uh, and the human voice, you know, is, is kind of the aspect of that, that I love the most, I think, or whether that voice is a mouth or a horn. Um, and, uh, so to go to a show, it's like, you're kind of standing in the presence of somebody that oftentimes you've already experienced and in its, in its proof of life, you know, in, of, you know, does this person really exist in, um, being able to be in a room producing people that when I first heard their records in my twenties, you know, again, like pre-internet, you didn't even know if they were still alive, you know, it was like, that was the question, you know, we were still looking up people in the phone book, you know, we would call information, you know, and be like, what musician lives here, you know, if we're passing through a town, you know, and, um, you didn't know if they were still alive, much less playing. Then you find out that they never stopped playing or, you know, they've got gigs everywhere. And, yeah. um, and, and that's just being a working musician and, and having music be a part of your life. But there, you know, there was still like so much mystery surrounding that, that I think it, it, as a big fan, it forced me to kind of, whether it's courage or just, you know, the, uh, the arrogance of youth or whatever it was to kind of reach out, you know, and. Yeah, that's it. There's probably a little bit of both. I mean, that line between sort of hubris and actual courage is, uh, is, yeah. is so interesting. Telling yeah. that it's line. What, and what do you want from this person really? Right. I mean, but you know, uh, in, in being a 17, 18, 19 year old and having those experiences, so many of those musicians were very willing to talk to me, you know, because I, they, I oftentimes was the youngest person in the room. They couldn't figure out why somebody that age was there. Um, and, uh, I mean, I was still going to see rock bands and stuff, but I always kind of had a taste for that era of, of music. So, yeah, that man, that's great. I, I, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. I, I'd like to kind of pivot to the unlikely optimist in his domestic adventures, which is just fun and weird and joyful and is, it has elements of a lot of your other work, but is um, sonically and thematically a little different in ways. Um, I love it. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And thank so you. first of all, just great job and thank you. Thank for you so much. Yeah. Record. Um, and for folks listening, can you talk maybe circling back to that Augie Myers thing? Because one of the things I found interesting about the record, when you pull it up on a streaming service, right, is that mm -hmm. everybody who played on the song is in parentheses. And I don't know if you if that was intentional or not, but like it, you don't see that normally. Like everybody who's involved with that song is is there. And I wonder if you could talk about sort of what the process looked like, because it feels like it was a very communal experience. Yeah. Um, so like with those names being present on, that was a mistake that as soon as I made that mistake, I was like, I like that. Like cool. I didn't know that was a possibility is I didn't, um, my two records before that I did not self-release. So like the, the labels that, that funded them and paid for them kind of did, I don't know what that's called, if it's called the metadata or whatever it is, but when I put the, started putting that in, putting that in there, I liked the fact that I, I felt like I was kind of creating my own like digital liner notes or something yeah. like that. Um, so I typed in everybody's name that played on each song. I, 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 somebody reached out to me and told me I made a mistake on one, like that there was no saxophone on one of the songs that I listed uh, Frank Rodarte on. But, you know, for the most part, I like, did my best to kind of plug that in. Um, and it was, it, I'm glad it sounds like a communal experience because 
it wasn't really, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in terms of the recording, um, I called up Augie to, to have lunch and then he initiated the recording of, and then I went down to a studio that he likes to work at and the engineer there said, play me a couple songs. Well, that engineer, Joe Trevino has since become one of my best friends. Mm. And so we went down there thinking Eve, my, my partner who sings on the record, you know, we're going to cut live with Augie and we don't know what's going to happen. Like, we're just going to record these songs and see how it goes. And the process was very different. Like Augie wanted to not cut live. So I recorded all those songs in a half a day, just me and a guitar and vocal and with Eve. And then the second half of the day, Augie played his Vox on it and squeeze box on it. And when he played the Vox, um, you know, besides loving Augie's solo records as in his stuff with Dylan and Tom Waits and stuff, I'm a big Doug Somm fan and Texas Tornadoes fan. And he wanted me to play my guitar so he could watch my hands for changes. Um, and, and then I, but he wanted me to take the capo off so he could see the chords better, mm-hmm. you know? And so we went through that where I was kind of miming playing along with him and then he recorded. And then I just kind of didn't know what to do with the recordings. And then uh, my friend was getting married, Keith Hanlon, who was in the Black Swans, who runs a recording studio in Columbus. And he offered to, if I flew in and conducted his wedding to give me some recording time. So then we had my old bandmates from the Black Swans, Kanan Faulkner and Jovan Karchish play on that. So they overdubbed and my guitar player here, Don Sento overdubbed his guitar. And then even I were in a bar one night and we saw Frank Rodarte playing a sax and singing and it just blew me away. And so I went up to him and I just said, man, do you play on other people's records? And, uh, of course he does. I didn't know at the time when I saw him, he played with Doug Somm and he was like, uh, in the, he was the first band leader for a strip club in Vegas in the sixties. So he kind of, that's where he was for that decade. And like Elvis and Sinatra used to see him and he's just in an old school sax player driving around a station wagon, you know, in San Antonio. And, uh, so he went down to Joe's and we cut his sax and then Ralph White added kalimba and some violin. It was, so it was kind of piecemealed together, but it was all people that were like my friends or people that I, it kind of happened in a pretty natural way. Like I was making, the whole time I was making that, I was also recording Time the Teacher and Burning Daylight and do, writing those records and recording them. But those were for labels and they were kind of, I really liked those records, but I kind of was doing my sort of homemade thing kind of along the way when I had sort of some, some extra money for studio time or, um, you know, some extra money to kick those guys, some, some, some bills. And, you know, I mean, but everybody, you know, it was very cheap record to make, you know, that's really cool. Is there a different headspace you have to be in when you're, I guess it came, it sounds like it came together over some time, but like, is there a different headspace you have to be in for, the one that you're making on your own versus the one you're making for the label or with the label rather. Not, it was, I didn't, I didn't feel that way. The only thing was I knew that, uh, I didn't have to talk to anybody else about it. Hmm. You know, I wasn't going to have to kind of have a conversation if I needed an extra studio day or I didn't like the mix or something. So it just, it wasn't a different headspace as much as it was just more of a private process, Mm. you know? Um, uh, And so that made it very easy. You know, nobody was talking to me about a release schedule or mixing it or, or, you know, and I, in in the meantime, I had produced a couple records too. Mm. Um, But, then even even the choice to kind of release it on my own was just something that I kind of felt like I wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know. So 
So you've got three records going at the same time, really, and then you and you're producing work as well. Mm-hmm. Like, what does your what's your schedule look like? Are you a get up in in the morning and do the work kind of person? Are you like what do you are you organized? How do you? I uh I don't feel organized, but I must be because I mean I've got a day job, you know, where I'm working, you know, like fifty hours a week, right? Um, and that job that job's been in the same field of vocational rehabilitation during the whole process of those records but you know three years ago i started my own very very tiny agency um and to be able to kind of provide those services in parts of san antonio and the hill country um but so you know i'm working full-time too and the music is because I don't produce for a job, um, and I probably turn down twice as many records than I do every year, mm-hmm. because I just either I'm not excited about it, or I don't think it's a good fit for me, or you know I just can't charge somebody enough for me to do it. And I don't, I just mean that in terms of like, you know, part of what you take on as a good producer is that, you, you know, that record means as much to you as it does the artist. Mm. And once you start doing that as a job, you you need to get paid for that, you know. And I, I make very very little money off of producing records, and oftentimes lose a little bit. Um, but it's okay; that doesn't bother me, you know, because it's a record that I deeply love, mm. you know. Um, but yeah, I get up early, you know. I mean, mm. I you know I I wake up around the same time every day, and uh, I've always I don't have kids, you know, so. Um, I, the, the records are what I do after work. Mm. You know, I, I, I cook, I cook dinner and sit on the porch with my guitar and daydream, Mm. you know, and, and I used to pre pandemic drive a lot for my job and the back roads here are nice for daydreaming, Mm. you know? Um, and, and so you kind of live these records in your head Mm you know, as you're going different places. Mm-hmm. And and that's just kind of what fills my fills my thoughts. That's so interesting. So the the process for you is is daydreaming. It's not like putting the pencil to paper kind of thing or it's kind of is is it does it live up here? Do the songs it, live it, up here? It definitely does. Wow. You know, and you know, when I write a song I need to be holding a guitar. Mm. You know, I mean maybe I'll get like an idea, but usually I'm holding a guitar when I write my own songs and I'm spending time on the mixes or the production choices or, um, you know, other, whether it's my record or somebody else's kind of when I'm sitting on my porch or, or driving around, you know, the, the back roads, you know, where there's no traffic. So it's not like I have to pay attention to very much, you know, so I'm envious of that. Yeah, there's plenty of traffic in Orlando. Yeah, there's uh, plenty in San Antonio. I just go down the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I finally, for the first time in 16 months or whatever, have been getting out of town, and uh, uh-huh. and I I went without a car for a couple of years in part because it was the pandemic and I didn't need one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I was working really yeah. close to home, and then I was working at home. Um, but now that I have a car, I'm just like, get me out of town and get me on a highway or get me, you know, get me, I've been taking yeah. my dog hiking. It's just right. been so nice to just get out. And get we away. went out of town for the first time together, uh, this past week and kind of went down to the Gulf, mm. uh, and kind of found a little place like out, like on, on the other side of South Padre Island and just kind of chilled out for a little bit. I mean, it's a, it wasn't as crowded as I thought it was going to be. So that was good. Um, yeah. And just got a lot of headspace. Um, and, and that helps. I mean, my front porch is great. You know, we, we kind of live in the country and there's houses around us, but, um, everybody's kind of got a small house on an acre and a half. So it's very easy for me to just kind of sit outside and kind of, you know, I talk to my friends on the phone and, listen to music and play guitar and Mm. you know next thing you know you have a record you know if you do that enough (laughs) that's great (laughs) that's a good that's great i'm I'm glad you know i'm glad it works that way for you that's really really cool or three records right (laughs) yeah i mean this 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 
it's my fourth solo record. The first solo record I made before I moved to Texas, uh-huh. um, I wrote in my friend Vicky's apartment in London, um, like at the end of a tour. And that was kind of piecemealed together too. And then the guy that mixed it, Stuart Sykes ended up, uh, we didn't know we were moving to Texas at the time. Uh, he lives in Austin and he mixes, he didn't mix the unlikely optimist, but he mixes most of the stuff now that I produce. Well, you mentioned, uh, since you brought up mixing, I didn't know the name Chris Shaw before I was doing the research for mm-hmm. this record, but it, it's Chris who, who mixed the unlikely optimist and those credits, like, the first public enemy records I want to say Crazy. yeah and love and theft like yeah did you know him before like how, how did that come about I, I I was a fan for a long time you know and and I think people become fans of his music you know in kind of the different worlds that he's got his footprint on you know I think he's got fans because of public enemy he was working at Green Street Studios in New York like I think when he first got out of college um he even played bass with Hello cool j on the unplugged episode and um he did he did some weezer records so i think like that's another world um and he's done a lot with dylan which is kind of how i came to him he's worked with super furry animals wilco Derek trucks you know so he's kind of got uh these different worlds of people that have very serious fans, you know, and I definitely came to him from the Dylan point of view because he had done things as things have changed. He recorded and mixed that song for Wonder Boys and then did Love and Theft and Modern Times and then the last one, Rough and Rowdy Ways. Um, wow. And uh, some of the bootleg series stuff. And so he was just. When I found out that he was like a couple towns over. Um, I was able to kind of reach out to some people that like were friends of mine that run bigger independent labels that I guess I've sort of aged out of, you know, it's, it's, you know, cause I, you know, once you get into your mid forties, it's, um, it's, that's kind of how it rolls, but, um, that then worked with his management company and put me in touch with him. Um, and I just drove over to his house, you know, and. Uh, he was super cool, you know, and, uh, it was great. And, and he, you know, I basically, you know, he's basically, you know, kind of started out that first day, you know, do you want this to sound private or big, or what do you want this to sound like? And I was just kind of like, you know, I, I don't know what you mean by that. Give me the Bob Dylan plug-in, whatever, (laughs) whatever you do for Bob, it's working do it for me that's great and um and then i just stared at his shoulders for three days and we just you know banged it out that's great yeah it was great oh man you tweeted about bob dylan earlier today i've never been invited onto a bob dylan podcast because people are afraid of the truth so jerry it's what is the truth well (laughs) uh you know the Bob Dylan community is, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very special group of people. So whenever I can kind of get a little dig on it, I try to. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan. I mean, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. And, and I think what drew me to Chris's mixes and recordings of those records is that Dylan songs really connected you know, and I think Dylan has made a lot of records that are great that maybe a lot of other people don't think are great, but um, I definitely like them, and I like the records that Chris Shaw made with him, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's cool to to like I told you before, I love the human voice, mm-hmm. and um, there's no disguising Bob's voice and, and you still find it super compelling. Like the Chris Shaw records, they're, they're not trying to make Bob sound any different than what he is, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's, that connects, you know, it doesn't connect in theory to a lot of people, but when they hear it, it resonates in some way. So. I wonder if the Brian Fallon episode where I talked about Bob Dylan with Brian Fallon was the one that got you into the marinade. 
If you haven't listened to it, it's a. It's I a have fun not listen. listened to that. It's a yeah, fun I, listen. Okay. One, one of the things we talked about was was our affinity for Bob Dylan's quote unquote late period, you know, and mm-hmm. and that time out of mind was kind of my introduction to Bob Dylan, and so was I it? was yeah. like eighteen or whatever when that mm-hmm. record came out, and yeah, um, and that was kind of how I got into Dylan, and so and then I of course went back and did all the digging and you know right. listened to all the records, but. Um, yeah, that's a fun, it's a fun listen. That's still probably my favorite record of his in, mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, if I were to have to choose maybe favorites, not the right word, but the one that I get the most out of, Yep. you know, each time I listen to it and, you know, that and infidels and street legal, um, are, are probably the ones that I, th- that have kept me the most company in the last 10 years of my life, I should say, you know, that's, that's I don't what know Fallon if I would have been able to appreciate him when I was younger. Maybe, I don't know. That's so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd be honored if you listened to that episode. Cause we talked I about definitely it. Will. Yeah. yeah. Street legal yeah. and infidels it. And, um, oh, why is the other one escaping me? The one, there's another one in that quote, that sort of mid period, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, Modern times, modern times. Is that right? Yeah. Modern times comes after like street legals, like 77, 78. Modern times Time like, out of mind's like 96, I guess. And, uh, I mean, definitely when time out of mind came out, I was already a massive fan. You know, I'd probably already seen him like 30 times or something. Oh, wow. Like wow. You know, we used to drive around in, in see him and, and, uh, and it was a great time to see Dylan from Time Out of Mind. You know, mm. he was, he had great opening acts. He was playing a lot of lead guitar. Mm. Um, he was doing a lot of covers. Um, and, and, you know, he's always had a hot band. So, mm. yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, I have a couple of, uh, couple of questions and then I'll, then I want to end with the, our, our typical question, which is what you're getting down on. So you might in the back of yeah. your mind, kind of think okay. about the art, okay. art that you're in, inspired by right now. But, um, it, there was a moment in, at the beginning of Joe Pug's podcast where he he's introducing you and he mentions that, that you played with Magnolia electric company and like, did yeah, you guys tour with them? So. Okay. Only okay. Cause I was yeah. wondering, cause I've never had gotten a chance to talk. I had Will Johnson on, but I didn't really bring up Molina in that moment. Cause there just was too much else to talk about. And, but I've always yeah. wanted to ask somebody who, who was, you know, who got a chance to see Jason Molina play what that was like, but. I saw him play a bunch of times. I mean, and, and we ran into each other several times too. And, you know, he's, you know, he was a road dog, you know? And so, um, I do know from the, the first time that we played with them it was it was very memorable it was in wasn't in so th- is this the black swans playing this with was them? black swans okay. yeah it was in des moines iowa oh. and and it was like a weeknight and um we had put out an ep on our own like our first record came out at the end of 2004 and it was this very like it's called who will walk in the darkness with you and it was this very sort of one note kind of ethereal, moody kind of record. And and then we put out right after that, this EP that was called Sex Brain that was more kind of like, uh, I, I guess lyrically it was not as kind of emotional. It was, it was more of a smarty pants type of thing. <laughs> and so we landed on a bill with him in Des Moines and he was asking me all these questions about like, we were shooting pool together and he was super competitive and, and I was beating him in pool. I'm pretty good. And he's, you know, he wasn't as good. And, uh, and, and he was kind of flexing a little bit, you know, of like, uh, you know, he goes, uh, you should be touring more. And I'm like, I'm right here, man. I'm, I'm, I'm touring as we speak, you know, and, uh, but I didn't find out until it, w- it was probably like maybe a year before he passed. I ran into Jason Groth, who's his guitar player in Magnolia. And, and he had said, he goes, man, we were so excited. We saw some review on pitchfork for you guys right after we played with you. We had no idea that you were from out of town. We thought you were from like Des Moines, Iowa, you know, <laughs> so it like totally made me re 
think the entire because he thought he was like hanging out with the local band and like trying to get them to be like you need to tour more you need to do this and you know and he somehow missed that i was also from out of town or something like that and just landed on the bill yeah um, and we saw each other a couple times after that and um it bars and it's south by southwest and you know the thing about him to me always was just that he was a great band leader and and he was a great live performer um and and i think that's why those records are recorded live hmm. um and he was able to kind of use that voice and use sort of like his guitar style which i think is really which i think you hear a lot more now I've, i was talking to a friend of mine who's a much younger guy and, and a really good guitar player and I was telling him this and he said, everybody does that. But at the time, at the time, not everybody did, which is that you have your guitar cranked really loud, but you're playing it really quiet. Mm. And so Jason would carry a room on the soul. I played a solo show with him somewhere once and he could carry a room like that with a Les Paul, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, he's, yeah, it's, it's, one of those things where you realize that you think you're having a beer with somebody and then you find out years later that that beer means something different to them, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I, I was definitely, uh, I don't think I was influenced by him, but I was definitely a fan and an admirer of how he carried himself in terms of having that, a band that there were not a lot of people making records like that first Magnolia Electric Company record when that came out. Mm, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. That was great. Um, to, just two more quick things. One is um, toads come up a lot. Are you like, yeah, what is they can it? hear you right now. Be careful what you say. Well, I, I, I have they're this beside me and they are sensitive. I have this weird affinity for frogs that we have in our yard that yeah. I didn't really have until we bought our house and we have a little like decorative pond and they, they hang out around the decorative pond. And then I, you know, they, I told this story before, but I accidentally killed one in the backyard and broke my heart so much. And, um, my dogs will chase them and I have to take them away from my dogs. And, but I just wonder what it is that speaks to you specifically about toads. I think I've always liked toads, but I mean, I, I like turtles. I like toads, you know, I'm not, not really a snake guy, but, uh, I think they're right at that point where, you know, they've got a lot of personality. They populate our yard during different times of the year. Mm -hmm. um, the to My toads, they're all Gulf Coast toads, which are what's common around here. Um, the town that I live in, Bolverde, is one of the last places, I think, in Texas where they actually had um, uh, like kind of like horny toads, which mm -hmm. are like now endangered. But they, they look like baby dinosaurs, not quite like um, the the different types of lizards around here where there's there's one that kind of looks like a dinosaur but right now it's just the gulf coast toads and being able to kind of watch them in the yard and we don't have as many road runners around here as we used to but after a big flood like a couple towns over we just had you know hundreds maybe a thousand you know toads in the yard and they were getting pecked off by owls and the road runners and the feral cats and so I raised them, you know, I raised a couple, wow. you know, and, you know, as I made the mistake at first of, uh, putting an anthill in their home, uh, because they were only small enough to be able to eat ants, but then the ants got out, that didn't go over super well. Um, and then I started feeding them flightless fruit flies and, you know, next thing you know, it's like, you're spending more money on your toads than you are your, your dog food. And, uh, and in there, they all have their own personalities. Um, they make funny sounds. They're now in our guest room, which is my, my work office. And, you know, they, I can still catch enough grasshoppers barehand, although this time of the year is a little, little rough for me in the yard when it's 105 degrees and I'm, and I'm chasing grasshoppers, but. So sometimes I buy crickets from the pet store and then I have to dust them with vitamin D powder and 
uh, or gut load them, you know, because the crickets are basically like the, essentially like the capsule, the pill capsule for the toads, you know. So you want them to get nutrients. But um, yeah, they're great. I named them all like just in the song, like that song is, you know, very, you know, uh, very much a chronicle of my life with those toads, which is I named them all Hoyt after Hoyt Axton, who I love. Um, a few of them have passed. I got a new one during the pandemic. I promised myself I wasn't getting to get any more pet toads, but I rescued one baby one and kind of raised it. I named him Shaver because it was the same time that Billy Joe passed. Uh -huh. And uh, so I've got two Hoyts. I've got Hale Hoyt and, and Little Hoyt, and I've got Shaver. Oh, that's great. I think yeah. the, the, the frogs in my yard kick kick off like uh ignite like a paternal instinct in me i think and that sort of yeah. sounds like what you're saying yeah i mean there's something i mean they're i think they're beautiful um I, obviously that's probably not like a traditional definition of beauty but um and and i thought they were deserving of a song you know it kind of you know and uh and uh, you know i like songs that are about little things that have greater depth and i like songs that are about little things that are uh, nothing more than that like there there's no metaphor involved to it you know mm -hmm. it's just um and uh so kind of they were definitely kind of a part of my life when i started writing the record and and i kind of wanted to document that um that's so great and uh it's it's funny because like you know you I, I play that song a lot because it's fun to play. Like the finger picking pattern is fun to play. Mm -hmm. um, the reaction is very varied when, when a grown man in his mid forties starts singing about his pet toads. So. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. Oh man. Well, I hope to, I hope to see him, see those live one of these days. Um, yeah. so you play Texas toad one of these days live. Um, but uh, thank you so much for all of this, Jerry. We usually end on what you're getting down on the art that's yeah. inspiring you. So um, there's like a, a record that came out a couple weeks ago from a saxophone player named James Brandon Lewis that I'm really into. Um, my friend Brian Harnetti that does kind of like piano mixed with uh, like blending piano composition with found sounds, like whether it's from Appalachia or Sun Ra has been working on some stuff. So I've been listening to a lot of his music. Um, there's a guy named Chris Schlarb that I don't know if you know him or not. He's got a band called Psychic Temple, um, but he's, he's out in LA and he's got a label called Big Ego Records. And so he produces a lot of records for his own label in there that kind of mix jazz with rock um great sounding albums you know kind of is able to kind of bring different people and personalities together um barry walker up in portland's a pedal steel player um he had a record come out this past year that i'm really into wow. um i don't know there's, there's a book by a poet that i really like a poet named forrest gander um that's got a book called twice alive um he is he's a geologist so i think his like the his use of like imagery and in in metaphor in history um is really unique um and i definitely lean towards when i'm looking for inspiration for songs i definitely lean towards poetry mm. probably contemporary poetry probably more than contemporary singer songwriters for that um so I don't know, that's kind of what's been going on like the last couple weeks. I, I started reading the new Richard Thompson book. Is mm. like, oh, cool. You know, I didn't even know that is, came out. Oh, man. It's crazy good. It's like way better written than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, like Richard Thompson, the Richard Thompson, like the songwriter you're saying. Yeah. 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 And, and like no knock on his songwriting, but just because you can write songs doesn't mean you can write right. prose, you know? Yeah. And yeah. But they had a couple lines in the book, and I won't like spoil it for anybody, where you're like reading about his experiences, which are very well written. And then like the end paragraph just like hits you over the head with this idea 
mm. an image or or cool. way to capture something that you're just like, oh yeah, you're a great writer. Yeah, like that's that's heavy, you yeah. know. And and I think he does a really good job that a lot of people struggle with that are older that write memoirs, which is to uh, be too sentimental about their youth. Um, and I think he does a really good job of like, like he was a fan, you know, he was a fan of music. He was aware of, it seemed like how fortunate he was at the time. And he's got a really good memory, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a pretty rich book. I'm like halfway through it. So I'm loving cool. it. I'll have to yeah. check that out. That sounds like something I would really enjoy. Well, speaking of enjoy, like I've enjoyed this so much, Jerry. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You. This has been super yeah. fun. Oh. I hope to see you next time I'm in Orlando. I haven't played there for years. Oh man, yeah. Please hit me up when you do. I mean, I'm sure I'll see it, and I'll. Uh, How long you, know, you been there for? I've been here for. So I I fell in love with somebody who lived here. So okay. I've been off and on here for seven and a half years. Okay. Um, I was living in Jacksonville for the first two and a half of that. So five okay. years or so I've been. I've definitely played it Jackrabbits many times. Oh, it's so great. I love Jackrabbits. Yeah. yeah. And the last time I played in Orlando was like, must have been close to Halloween weekend. And we were, it was kind of the last go round of the Black Swans and we were, opening up for somebody at some big club, but we were at a, a Thai restaurant and we ate really early because we were playing first and we had a sound check and there was nobody else in the Thai restaurant, right? And I'm sitting there with my back to the door and I'm looking in the mirror and in walks Alejandro Escovedo and his band. And, uh, and so walking out of the restaurant, they were the only other people there. Um, I but said, you hey, weren't man. opening for them. They just happened to be in town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were playing, they were playing a club like around the corner. We were playing some big rock club cause we were opening up for a, a, a band and, and it was just me and a pedal steel player at the time. So we were doing this sort of like mini version of the black swans opening up for this rock band. And, um, but so I said to Alejandro, I said, Hey man, I'm a fan of your music. I'm in the black swans. And he goes, well, come on over to the gig when you're done. So we got done. They were playing kind of early. We caught the last uh, couple minutes or a couple songs of that gig. And then afterwards, he goes, oh, man, did you get in okay? And I was like, it was great. And then I said, you know, we actually met before, Alejandro. I don't know if you remember this. Um, I uh, was, it was, I was 20 years old at the time, and I was up in Cleveland, you're playing uh, a show as part of the Jimmy Rogers tribute concert for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was up there to go see the gigs. And I saw you walking down the street. And I picked you up and I drove you back to the hotel room. And we ended up, hang let's just say we ended up hanging out. And, you know, and it, and, and probably now more than even then, you know, you cannot keep up with Alejandro. And, <laughs> and so uh, he had to help me into the elevator. <laughs> At which point in time I get out of the elevator. I'm 20 years old, right? I get out of the elevator and I actually fell into, literally just tripped and fell into Guy Clark with Gillian Welch and David Rawlings on both sides of him. And, you know, Guy Clark's like, you know, like almost seven foot tall, right? And and I'm like 5'10", and and was much shorter in that moment of my life. Uh, and, you know, he goes, hey, friend, and just helped me back up. And the whole thing was just surreal. And I'm telling Alejandro this, and he goes, let's go do it again right now. And so, uh, so Orlando, my last trip to Orlando is very memorable. Oh, that's so wild. What a great story. I'm so glad you yeah. told that story. Well, yeah. if you come so, back, um, I I won't do that. Please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could handle that. Anymore. I can't hang with Alejandro yeah. from what I'm gathering here. So no. so my, my buddy Sven, who uh, was playing with me, you know, he's, he's still like when we talk about it, he goes, remember when we got Alejandro? <laughs> definitely got Alejandro, you know. 
Dude, so, I'm so glad you told that story. Yeah. What a perfect yeah, uh, That was our, my last trip to Orlando. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Do you mind if I leave that in? Do I leave that story? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have All a right. great night. Great. Good to see you. Likewise. Take care. Stay in touch. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Jerry David DeSicca, y'all. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank all of you for listening. JerryDavidDeSicca.com for all things Jerry, including a place to order a vinyl copy of his latest record, The Unlikely Optimist, and his domestic adventures, which will be available this fall. The song you're hearing in this episode is Country Cookie from that very record. It's such a fun listen, y'all. Get down on it. And then also dive into his back catalog and production work. Uh, special plug for the Black Swan stuff. Just so good. Marinadepodcast.com for all things The Marinade, including written pieces, photography, our online store, and more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Give us a follow and a five-star rating on your podcast app. These are all free ways to support the show. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community, where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content, like our show Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and then also provide a window into the process of making the marinade. Sometimes we even get together for Patreon happy hours, and this week we have a very special Jason's Journey with songwriter and podcaster Will Payne Harrison. Will and I chatted for a while about podcasting and life, and you can hear that conversation at patreon.com slash podcast for as little as $5. It's a good time. Come join us if you can. Will and I had so much fun that we are going to do some some more things together in the future, some stuff that will be available uh, through him and some stuff that will be available through me. So check it out if you can swing it. If not... Hey, above all, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for spreading the word about the marinade. Y'all make this whole thing possible. All right, y'all, it's time for what I'm getting down on, the segment of the show where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. I am late to the mayor of Easttown party over on HBO, um, and the reason is because I have a hard time stomaching the glorification of the police. I never watched Law & Order or SVU or NCIS or NYPD or any of the acronymic named shows that center around the cops but um this show has something deeper to it a la say true detective it has me hooked um the characters are flawed but redeeming their their lives are messy and complicated the show is wonderfully acted of course kate winslet is the protagonist and like you know she's gonna knock everything out of the park and she does in this case as well it's also really well written um it's just enough of like uh, of a of a challenge intellectually to keep you stimulated but also it clips along really well and is uh is entertaining and and so you don't you don't have to totally be locked in but you kind of do and it's been good medicine for me lately i recommend mayor of east town if you're like me and you're late to the party i've also been reading kristen arnett's with teeth and Killers of the Flower Mood by David Gran. I mentioned the latter in the last episode. Um, I was halfway through Killers of the Flower Moon when it was due back in the library here in town, and I couldn't renew it because the book was on hold. So I ordered it from bookshop.org, and uh, while I was waiting, I started Kristen Arnett's With Teeth. So now I'm hooked on two books, and all I want to do is read and not do anything else with my life. Yesterday, I basically burned the day and read, which was great. And, um, I, you know, I sung the praises of Kristen Arnett's first novel, Mostly Dead Things, a few years ago. Um, I, it's one of those books that, like, I remember specifically when I heard about it. I can I can vividly take myself back to that moment. Um, I can... I can I remember like sitting in certain places reading that book. You know what you know when you have a book like that that you you're really into and that leaves an impression on you. You can remember those moments. That's how mostly dead things was 
for me, um, With Teeth has a lot of the same hallmarks that I loved about Mostly Dead Things. It's got a lesbian protagonist navigating a challenging life. It's a story set in Florida, told in a way only a Floridian can describe. Um, Kristen Arnett has knocked it out of the park again, y'all. Just can't, can't recommend it enough. With Teeth, absolutely fantastic. So many great records have come out recently. Sturgill Simpson continues to amaze. Um, this time with his concept album, The Ballad of Dude and Juanita. Um, there's a lot that I like about it. I, I think Sturgill has kind of ventured into bluegrass quite a bit, um, pretty famously. Uh, he's got some amazing players with him, and the guy can do anything. This has a lot of those elements. Um, it is clearly a nod to Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger as well, which is maybe... You know, depending on the day you catch me, my favorite record of all time. Um, the Ballad of Dude and Juanita, I connect with also because it's set in Kentucky. Um, I don't talk a lot about my Kentucky roots on this show, but my whole family is from Kentucky going back many, many generations. I was born in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, like the movie from the early 2000s. It's it's a part of who I am. And, and while I grew up in Central Florida and really connect as a Floridian and identify as a Floridian, my family took two to three trips back to the bluegrass state every year growing up. Um, and when you have roots that like that, you're going to connect with the place and its stories. Plus Sturgill is a genius, right? We're watching a legend in the making. Um, the, the same day that dude and Juanita was released, Malcolm Holcomb's tricks of the trade also dropped. I mentioned this record about a month ago, but I wanted to remind you that it's out now in the world. There's so many wonderful records that, you know, when I when I hear something I'm crazy about, like Tricks of the Trade by Malcolm Holcomb, I, I don't, I know sometimes those records can get lost because someone of the stature of Sturgill drops an album, uh, but don't, don't sleep on that one. Tricks of the Trade by Malcolm Holcomb came out the same day that The Ballad of Dude and Juanita did. Y'all, I could go on. There's so much great music. We're living in such an exciting time for music and art, but for now... I just want to say I'm grateful to be able to make this show and to talk about the creative process with so many incredible artists. We have just wonderful conversations in the can coming up uh, your way and then also going to record some with some amazing artists we've already got booked. So thank you all for making this possible. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.